Well, good morning, friends. I'm Pastor Brandon. I encourage you to uh, keep your Bibles open to John 13 this morning. I'm excited to be back in the Gospel of John. We took a couple months off this summer and considered some other other matters, but uh, it's great to be back in here. And just to, to sit again under John's portrait of Jesus, his burden in this book is to show us Jesus in all of his glory. So to, to show us the, the glory of Christ that transcends our world and our expectations, and then yet that comes down to dwell with us in love, the intimacy he invites us into, a Jesus who invites us to see his power, to know that love, and to believe in his name that we might have life. Uh, If you're just joining us, we've been in John's gospel for just about a year. We kind of take a chunk, and then we step out of it, and then we come back. But we started our journey about a year ago, uh, and last fall, we beheld Jesus' glory. Uh, We saw how as the Word of God incarnate, that Jesus reveals the glory of the Father in a new and climactic way, all of human history has been moving toward and leading up to this person, this moment. All of the rest of human history flows from it uh, in Christ. And and so that was kind of the the emphasis of the first few chapters. Then last spring, we saw Jesus' power. We saw how he demonstrated his identity as the promised anointed king through the signs that he would work, each of which testifying to who he is. And as he continued to do that, we also saw kind of a, a rising opposition to him that those who, uh, the, the leaders among the Jews took that as a threat. They began to kind of oppose Jesus and eventually planning to take him out and get rid of him. And so then when we, as we come to chapter 13 this morning, uh, this brings us to a new section in the book where now Jesus invites us to know his love. Uh, the book moves for, from this the wandering crowds, the public signs, the growing opposition. It it moves now to this quiet, intimate, private conversation between just Jesus and his disciples, his closest followers. And and really, in in many ways, the section that we're going to be working through this fall, chapters 13 to 17, it's all a single conversation. It's all a single conversation, what's sometimes called the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse, whereas the last few chapters spanned several years of Jesus' life and ministry. The next few chapters cover mere moments. The cross is hours away at this point, because as John tells us in verse 1 here, Jesus' hour had come to depart from the world back to the Father. The cross is hours away. And so, so what Jesus does is, is spend his final moments on earth before his arrest, before his trial and his public execution. He spends those final hours preparing his disciples for his departure. Because the mission of Jesus does not end with the earthly ministry of Jesus. It carries on through his church whom he sends into the world. Just as the Father sends the Son into the world, so now the Son is going to send his disciples to carry his love to the very ends of the earth. And so how does he prepare them for what's ahead? Uh, Not just his 
crucifixion and, and resurrection and ascension, but, but the ministry they will have beyond those pivotal events. How does he prepare his disciples? Uh, well, it's going to take all of chapters 13 to 17 to answer that in these final moments, but he starts by anchoring his preparation of them in the fullness of his love. So if you look again at verse 1 with me. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. This first verse of chapter 13 I'm convinced, doesn't just introduce the conversation and events that unfold in this chapter. It really introduces everything that is yet to come in the gospel. Uh, the whole upper room discourse and the cross on the other side of it. And in many ways, it's like a hinge in the gospel of John. It, it looks back on where we've been. It says, having loved his own who were in the world. So his signs, his teaching, his preparation of his disciples, that was all love. That was all an act of love. And yet then it looks forward at what's yet to come. The preparations and the passion are still more love. The whole thing of, John, of Jesus' life in ministry is shaped by love. And as John puts it, with what's to come, it says, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end, which is just this wonderfully ambiguous phrase. What does John mean that Jesus loved them to the end? Is he, is he saying that he loved them all the way to the end of his earthly life? He didn't stop short just before the finish line. Or is he talking about the extent of his love? He loved them in every way possible. He held nothing back. Or is he talking about his purpose? He loved them to completion. In every way he intended to. He finished the plan. Well, as I've been reflecting on that verse, I am increasingly convinced uh, that the answer is simply yes. He loved them to the end in all that that implies. The extent, the duration, the purpose of his love. Christ's love for his people is without measure. It's without limit. It's without failure. His love never stops short, it never falls short, and it never expires. Everything he does is love. That is the love of Christ. Now, there's also um, a note that creates a little confusion in John in this first verse as well about the timing of the events in these chapters. Verse one indicates that some of this happened before the, the Passover feast, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe the Last Supper uh, of the Lord Jesus as a Passover feast. And there's no time to get into the weeds here. Um, just to note that I think the time reference in verse 1 here is referring to that moment of reflection and decision when Jesus decides he is going to love his children to the end. He's going to love his people to the end. And then that the supper that follows is indeed the Passover meal. And there's lots of reasons for that. But the point being that, that this week, this moment did not sneak up on Jesus. He knew full well what was waiting for him. Before the Passover even arrived, he was determined to follow 
what lay ahead in all that it's cost. He was going to love his people to the end. And the first lesson uh, that he gives to his disciples as he prepares them for his departure is to show them the humility of that love that he has for them, the humility of love. And so in verses 2 to 11, we, we have this beautiful portrait of love's humility, namely how love lowers itself for the sake of the other. Love lowers itself for the sake of the other. Verses 2 and 3 set the context. The end is already in motion, and Jesus is here for it. This is why he has come. And and I think the reason John tells us that before we even read the story is because it's tempting, if we think of Jesus and his kingdom in, in strictly earthly categories, it's really tempting to read the story here as a failure of his kingdom. I mean, what king let somebody from his inner circle betray him like this? What king gets himself killed as the climax of his reign? Like, this, this doesn't look like the way it's supposed to work. John wants us to know nothing that we're about to read is outside of God's plan. Nothing we're about to read. In fact, it's not even outside of Jesus' own knowledge and intention. Everything he is Everything that's going to happen to him, everything he's about to do, John tells us, he does knowing that the Father has given all things into his hand. He is the one in control of what's happening here. Nobody takes his life from him. He willingly lays it down, which was always the plan. In his love, he lowers himself for the sake of the other. That was always the plan. He had come from the Father. He's getting ready to go back to God. But the only way he can do that and be faithful to what the Lord sent him to do is to go through the cross on his way home. And that's what he's, that's what he's come to do. And Jesus wants his disciples to understand this as well. He wants them to understand the love that he has for them and the love that they need to have as they carry on his mission after his departure. Not a love that, that focuses on self-preservation or self-advancement, but that lowers itself for the sake of others. And, and they need this little lesson uh, because their assumptions back then, are, were, they're not very far off from many of our assumptions today. That winners win And important people are honored and served by everybody else. As Luke tells this story of this final dinner, he relates how a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So picture the scene. Jesus is getting ready to go die for his people, and they're arguing over who his favorite is at the dinner table, right? And you can imagine Peter fuming. He's so far down that he has to like pass the message forward a few t- uh, chairs to get to it. You know, which one is Jesus talking about? That's later on. And so Jesus gives them a lesson. He shows them the humility of love. Verse 4, Jesus rose from the supper. He, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash 
his disciples' feet and wiped them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, imagine inviting your school principal or your boss or the mayor or a senator, somebody of, of, of notable standing in the community, inviting them over for dinner. And halfway through the meal, they get up, roll up their sleeves, grab a, a rag and a bottle of bleach, and go start cleaning your bathroom. Like scrubbing the toilet, pulling the hair out of the shower drain, cleaning your bathroom. What would you do if that happened? I mean, every one of us here, we would stop, try to do everything we can to stop them from doing that, right? One, that's gross. Two, it's not their job. Three, it's a little bit intimate, like the bathroom is kind of personal. And four, they're the guest of honor, right? If anybody's cleaning bathrooms today, it should not be them, it should be us. I, I can imagine Jesus' disciples were feeling something of that same awkward uh, astonishment in what Jesus did. Here is their teacher, their master, their Lord, the head, the honored guest, lowering himself to do what was, what was considered the work of a servant or a slave in that culture. It was lowly work to wash their feet, which is both gross. I mean, they've been walking dirty roads and sandals all day and a little bit personal. And it's not his job. He's the guest of honor. If anybody's washing feet, it should be the disciples washing his. That's how the world works. The important people get the honor and the unimportant people do the honoring, right? That's how the world works. Jesus even alludes to this in Luke twenty-two twenty-seven: For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? That's how the world works. They're the featured guests, the help. They do all of the helping. But then he, he continues, but I am among you as the one who serves, Love lowers itself for the sake of the other. And what the disciples don't understand yet here, as is evidenced by Peter's reaction in verses 6 to 11, is that Jesus is not simply giving them an object lesson. He is doing that. There is a lesson that they are to follow, and we'll get to that in a bit. But he's doing something much more. He is acting out the humiliation of his incarnation and crucifixion. How low he was willing to lower himself in love for their sake. As one author explains, foot washing, a service that a slave can be expected to render to a master, foreshadows and interprets Jesus' death. Because even as Jesus performs the service of a slave, on the cross he will die the death of a slave. Even as he willingly washes his disciples' feet, so he will willingly lay down his life for them. The foot washing points to the cross. The Apostle Paul immortalizes this, uh, this picture of Jesus lowering himself in the Christ hymn of Philippians 2, 6-8. He says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, 
taking the form of a servant, a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You can just see the lowering. He goes lower and lower and lower in his love. And, and, and this connection between the foot washing and the crucifixion comes out in his conversation with Peter in verses 6 to 11. I love Peter. Peter has this glorious way of never quite getting it right in the Gospels, right? Uh, at first, he says, there's no way I'm going to allow my master to do something so low and menial as to wash my feet. No. And then Jesus says, well, if I don't do this, you have nothing, you have no part in me. So he's like, all right, do the whole thing then. Bring, wash all of me, like, which still doesn't get the point. And it's a point, Jesus tells them in verse 7, they're not going to get until later. And by later, he's not talking about later in the conversation, but later after the crucifixion and resurrection. Because the foot washing points to the cross. If they don't have a category for foot washing, they still don't have a category for the cross. Jesus says to them, if you won't let me serve you this way, how can I serve you that way? And if I serve you that way through the cross, you don't need to be bathed again. The blood of Christ is sufficient to wash all your sins away. You are loved and you are clean. Love lowers itself for the sake of the other. And knowing Jesus, this is just as important as to know what love does, but to know Jesus means resting in that love. Knowing Jesus means resting in that love which has lowered itself for you. As easy as it is to take shots at Peter, I mean, who among us does not do the exact same thing? To think, you know, that, that somehow it's either embarrassing or, or awkward or inappropriate for Jesus to wash me or my feet. You know, maybe we feel that we're too good for Jesus. We like to be seen doing good things for him. It's a little awkward and unnerving for him to actually serve us, though. And so, you know, we're down, he's down there trying to wash our feet, and we're embarrassed by it. Jesus, really, I got it. It's okay. I can clean my own feet. Get up before you make a scene. We, we, we're the ones doing good for you. And yet, as good as we may be, none of us are as good as we think we are, and none of us are free from sin. None of us are free from sin, its effects, its penalty. And so unless Christ washes your feet, unless he dies for your sins, you have no part in him. He is the only cleansing available for our sins. But more than that, more often than that, like Peter, it's not that we feel too good for Jesus. Some of us might, but, but many of us, we feel too bad for Jesus. Like we've messed up way too much for him to give any attention to us. So our, our sin is too bad. It's too heavy. We're, we're too ashamed to let Jesus go near our feet. They're just gross. And yet, that doesn't stop Jesus from doing it, does he? It doesn't stop Christ from lowering himself in love. And, and if you think, now, you're never supposed to compare yourself to other people, right? So don't do that. 
But if you think you're that bad, Jesus washed Judas's feet here as well, right? The guy who's about to betray him to his death, the one who who went through the motions of letting Jesus wash his feet, but really didn't receive his love and isn't actually clean, that didn't stop Jesus from washing his feet too. J.C. Ryle writes about the love of Christ for sinners. He says that, that he should love, love us at all and, and care for our souls, that he should love us before we love him or even know anything about him, that he should love us so much as to come into the world to save us, take our nature on him, bear our sins, and die for us on the cross. All this is wonderful indeed. It is a kind of love to which there is nothing like it among men. The narrow selfishness of human nature cannot fully comprehend it. It is one of those things which even the angels desire to look into. Because the thing we don't often realize, Jesus' love does not work like ours. Jesus' love is altogether above us. As, as Dane Ortland explains, we love until we are betrayed. Like we love, but there's a line, and if you cross it in betrayal, my love is done, right? Jesus love continued to the cross despite betrayal. We love until we are forsaken. Ignore me, abandon me. That's the line. Jesus loved through forsakenness. We love up to a limit. Jesus loved to the end. He doesn't measure out his blood for us based on our worthiness. In fact, the opposite is true. He gave all of it, his whole life, because we are utterly unworthy and yet absolutely and fully loved. That is the love of Christ for us. And so sometimes we, we resist because we think we're too good or we resist because we think we're too bad. But then sometimes, even when we are looking to Jesus for our forgiveness, even when we are looking to the cross, we still don't quite rest in His love. Like even though we've been forgiven, we, can, we feel constant guilt as we go about life. Even though we've been cleansed, we, we continue to carry our shame with us, afraid anybody's going to find out. As if the cross wasn't actually enough. And so again, like Peter, not, not just my feet, Lord, but my head and my hands. I need more. But if you have bathed in the blood of Christ, you are clean. If you have trusted Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you are washed. You are washed. The cross is enough. We don't add to it and we don't need him to add to it. It is finished. As Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offering, Jesus perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It is finished. Which does not mean that we've arrived or that we still don't sin or mess up or need to strive for repentance and, and, and uh, sanctification. We're still being sanctified, he says. But it means that everything necessary 
to forgive our sins and cleanse our guilt and secure our eternity with the Lord has been finally and fully accomplished for us in the cross of Jesus, and that Jesus will continue to love us all the way to the end. He will finish in us what he has started. That is the confidence we have in Christ's love for his children. Again, to quote Ryle, he helps us consider not just the love of Jesus for sinners, but also the love of Christ for saints, that he should bear with all their countless infirmities from grace to glory, that he should never be tired of their endless inconsistencies and petty provocations, that he should go on forgiving and forgetting incessantly and never be provoked to cast them off and give them up. All this is marvelous indeed. That is the love of Christ for us. As John Owen has said, there is not the meanest, the weakest, the poorest believer on earth, but Christ prizes him more than all the world. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the love of Christ for his people is that rich, that deep, that secure, that complete? You are loved and you are cleansed. Brothers and sisters, rest in his love. Rest in his love. But the humility of love does not stop with what Jesus has done for us. As he returns and, and takes his place back at the table, which I think subtly foreshadows his ascension, he now moves the focus from what he's done for them to what they now must do for one another. He is preparing them for his departure. And so in verses 12 to 15, we move from a portrait of love's humility to the call to love humbly. The call to love humbly. Love follows Jesus' example of humble service. And he says to his disciples in verse 12, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. You have to admit, Jesus' logic is impeccable here. Like there is no way to argue yourself out of the implications of what he's just done. He he truly is, I mean, they, they were right to be shocked at what he did. He truly is above them as their master and Lord. But if he, the one who rightly deserves that place of honor, was willing to lower himself in love for others, who are they to do anything different? Like, true love follows Christ's example of humble service, which sounds really easy when you put it that way. It's a whole lot harder to do in real life, though, isn't it? To actually, like, die to myself to serve someone else. Because the reality is, as, as shocked as we are to see Jesus trying to serve us, we kind of like it when others do, right? We, we kind of like it when others do. Because there's something in us that likes 
being treated like a king. When the real king does it, we're like, no, 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 this, this isn't right. But you could do it. You could treat me. Somebody else can. Left to ourselves, we're far more interested in being loved than in loving, in being served than in serving. Which, you know, when you think about it, how many of the conflicts that mark our daily lives are, are fueled by that impulse, that expectation? That, that if you would just get with the program and serve me, all of this would be better, right? Why do I get angry when I can't find a parking spot close to the door at Walmart? I mean, didn't they all know I was on my way? Why, why do I get upset or annoyed or, or insecure when somebody else gets praise and attention? Why do I get annoyed when uh, nobody puts the dishes in the sink like where they're supposed to go despite my collection of cups on my nightstand that don't quite make it there either? Why do we do that? We like being served. There's something in us that thinks we deserve it. But as Jesus is helping his disciples understand, as he says during that supper in Luke 22, the kings of the Gentiles do things like that. They exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Everybody gives them praise and credit. But not so with you. Not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Love follows Jesus' example of humble service. You know, I think of the story of Eric Little. Um, he's probably best known for his, being portrayed in the film Chariots of Fire as a, an Olympic runner, but uh, who spent his post-Olympic years as a missionary in China for 20 years, where he'd grown up as a missionary kid. And this is back in 1925 to 1945. And so as he's there as a missionary in China, uh, as World War II begins to, to come on the rise and the Japanese occupation is, is looming overhead, he sends his family, his kids, back to Canada, or not back, but over to Canada for, for safety. And, and he remains behind in China during the war to help his brother in serving the poor and needy. He spent his final two years in a Japanese internment camp. And at one point, when the British government had negotiated his release, he gave up his spot to a pregnant woman so that she could be rescued instead of him. He died in that internment camp five months before the liberation of a brain tumor. And on his deathbed, a fellow missionary recorded his last words, it's complete surrender. It's complete surrender. Referring to what it looks like to follow the example of Christ in love. This is how we've been loved. This is how we're called to love one another. It's exactly how Jesus applies his example later in John 15. My command is this, love each other as, as I have loved you. Well, what does that look like? Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's what Christ's love for us looks like. That's what we get to love, how we get to love in return. The humility of love moves us beyond simple service but to serve at great cost to self. 
in the economy of the gospel, the other always comes first. And again, this, this is exactly how Paul applies the humiliation of Jesus in, in Philippians. Is that wonderful, soaring Christ hymn showing his, his humiliation and then exaltation. But, but the reason Paul takes us there is to ground his instructions from verses 3 to 5. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as better than yourselves. Let each look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, didn't exploit that for selfish gain, but instead became nothing. Like That's our pattern. That's our salvation, our power. It's also our pattern of following Jesus. To love one another as he has loved us. As Marianne Thompson writes, the simplest task, washing another's feet, and the costliest gift, dying for another, both reflect Jesus' life-giving mission and work for others. The disciples are to do these things in remembrance of him. In Jesus, we are loved, we are cleansed, and we are called to love as we have been loved. But this call is more than just a helpful suggestion or a life hack. Loving as we have been loved is not just a better way to live, though it is, it is that. It is, in fact, essential to the mission that Christ has given his church. As he is preparing his followers, followers for his departure, this love for one another is meant to overflow into gospel witness to the world. Our love reveals Jesus in its humble service. And so in verses 16 to 20, we conclude with the urgency of humble love. The urgency of humble love. Now, one thing I have not commented on much, but hopefully you noticed it in the reading, is that there is woven into this story of love a great contrast, the brewing betrayal of Judas. Jesus can, keeps dropping little breadcrumbs throughout the story in verse 2 and 10 and 11 and 18 and 19, and he's going to go there directly in verses 20 to 30, or 21 to 30. Pastor Josh is going to walk us through the betrayal story next week, starting picking up in verse 18. So I'm not going to say a lot about that right now. Simply to note that, that Judas's inclusion in the 12 was not a failure of selection, but a fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus is still the one in charge here. But in contrast to that selfishness and betrayal, we see the urgency of the disciples' humble love. He says to them in verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So loving as Jesus has loved us, it's not just a, a good suggestion, right? Uh, here's something to consider doing. This is a command. This is the right application and response of Jesus' love for us. And it's the only truly fulfilling way to live. We think 
that we'll find life and satisfaction if other people just treat us as, make much of us. That's what we think we're going to find our happiness and joy in. When somebody else makes much of me, it actually comes in losing myself for the sake of the other. That's what Jesus tells us. Because when I lose myself to serve you, I'm no longer focused on my agenda. I'm no longer focused on, on my time or my money or, or whatever else. I've lost all of that because I have Jesus and he's enough. And, and, and so losing ourselves pushes us to treasure Christ. And if I'm treasuring Christ I don't have to get you to serve me. I'm free to serve you regardless of anything I get in return because I have him and he's enough. That is the only truly satisfying way to live. That is where we find blessing, not in being made much of, but in making much of Jesus and helping others to make much of him as well. I'm free to die to self for your sake because the love of Christ is enough. And this self-giving love actually reveals Jesus to the world through its humble service. If you look at what he says in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives me receives the one I send. Whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is why I say John is like the Yoda of the gospel writers. He's just like, get the grammar in line, please. But whoever receives the one I send receives me. Think about what Jesus is saying. And, and, and whoever receives Jesus receives the one who sent him. That is a remarkable way to describe our relationship with God. I mean, that is actually the same kind of language Jesus uses to describe his relationship with the Father earlier in the book. Chapter 12, verse 45, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. So as the Father sent the Son into the world, so the Son is sending the church. Jesus is going back to the Father, but his mission continues through us and through our union with Jesus by faith. As we proclaim the gospel and show his love, those who receive us and our message are actually receiving him. And all who receive him are receiving God, the one who sent him, the Father. And the Upper Room Discourse is going to have a lot more to say about this incredible dynamic between the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, and then us being invited into that intimacy But the point here is that there is an urgency to following Christ's example of love. Love reveals Jesus in its humble service. As he says later in chapter 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our love reveals Jesus to the world. You are washed, you are loved, you are clean, and you are called to love as you have been loved. And so how does, how do we put that into practice? Like Jesus says in verse 17, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Not just if you know them. 
It'd be really nice to just kind of like, all right, cool, I'm supposed to do this. What does it actually look like? How, how do I follow the example of Jesus in laying my life down in love for someone else? And the beautiful thing is that there's not one right answer to that. There are countless opportunities to follow the example of Christ in loving each other and loving those around us. Um, I'll give you a few ideas, not as the only way to apply it, but as some suggestions that might help you get the wheels turning. So for some of us, maybe that looks like uh, taking advantage of some of the opportunities for outreach or service in the regular daily life of Stonebridge Church to, to get involved serving one another in, in our ministries in one way or another. Uh, maybe it looks very literal in terms of getting on your knees and washing feet and changing diapers in loving children and showing them Jesus from their earliest days. Uh, maybe it looks like uh, coming alongside young kids in elementary or high school. There's lots of opportunities to show the love of Christ in laying our lives down for each other. Maybe it's linking arms with the food pantry ministries, with, with Hawthorne Hills or with Hoover School, and, and, and tangibly showing the love of Christ to those in need. There's lots of ways to do this. Maybe it's simply carving out time in my calendar to spend time with, with one other person to help them either know Jesus or grow up in Jesus, what we've been talking about with our, with our disciple-making, to equip, to evangelize, to establish another person in Christ. Ask God to open your eyes to opportunities. But then all, as you do that, as you pray that, remember that loving as Jesus loved us is going to be costly. Like it's going to be inconvenient. He loved us as a sacrifice. I think the biggest hurdle we run into in trying to love others as Jesus loved us is we're still looking for that convenient one, like the one that doesn't mess up my world too much so that I've got to reorganize or rearrange or, or whatever. We're looking for that convenient one. And fine, I get it. Believe me, I get it. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. It wasn't convenient for Jesus to go to the cross, but he did it in love. He gave everything. What are we willing to do to lay our lives down for others? Loving as we've been loved will mess up your calendars. It will mess up your checkbook. It will mess up your plans. It will cause you to lower yourself to do things that maybe, if you were honest, you think that they're a little bit below you. It'll cause you to say no to yourself and yes to Jesus, and it will be absolutely worth it. Absolutely worth it. Because in Jesus, you are loved, you are cleansed, and you are called to love as you have been loved. Let's pray and ask God for the strength of His Spirit to do it. Gracious Father, Lord, we confess how tempting it is to want to, to flip the kingdom and put ourselves on top. Lord, forgive us and help us to follow our Lord's example of love. Lord, help us to rest in the love of Jesus, 
Maybe we don't love well because we're not resting well. Help us to truly rest in the sufficiency of Christ our Savior. And in that rest, move us to follow his example, to show his love to one another and to the world to love as we have been loved. Lord, we ask that you would do that in us and through us for the sake of your name. Amen.